Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, it's good to have you here. Luke chapter 5, we're looking at the first 11 verses this morning. It came about that while the multitude were pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. He saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land, and he sat down and began teaching, teaching the multitudes from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but at your bidding I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So as we've been going here through the life of Jesus, he's, he's had great popularity. People are pressing in on him. They are hounding his every step, trying to get as close to him as they can to see what's he going to do next? What's, what's the next miracle? And still astounded as his teaching, as he taught as one that had authority and not teaching as the rabbis of that day who would refer and to others and quote other authorities. Probably always there was some pushing and shoving to try to get close to him. But on this occasion, they had followed him out to the seashore of the lake of Gennesaret. Now, don't let that name throw you a curve. We're talking here about the Sea of Galilee. But it had more than one name. Gennesaret was a Hebrew name meaning princely garden. Princely garden. This sea was also called the Sea of Tiberias, from the city of that name on its western shore. And in the Old Testament, it would be called the Sea of Chinnereth, which meant harp-shaped. Harp-shaped. The Sea of Galilee, as we know it, was a freshwater lake. It lay 680 feet below sea level. It was surrounded by mountains, and so that part of the land there just looks like a big bowl, all right? It swarmed with fish of uh, uh, many different varieties. Fishing was one of the three great industries in Palestine, fishing, agriculture, and shepherding. And it was a pretty lucrative business on this lake because there were a lot of fish and a lot of different kinds of fish. The lake itself is about 12 and a half miles long eight to nine miles wide at its widest point. In Christ's day, there were about nine different cities of 15,000 people or more that stood on its shores. 
One of the things the Sea of Galilee was noted for was its violent storms because the cold wind would come from that northern plateau over the mountains and meet that like tropical air from the bowl there, that 680 feet below sea level, and the storms on the Sea of Galilee could be quite violent. And we know different times when the disciples would be out there, when the storms would come up and when Jesus walked on water, things like that. But this lake, this Sea of Galilee, was the scene of much of Jesus' Galilean ministries. So with the crowds pushing and pressing upon him, it made it impossible for Jesus to find a place to, where everybody could see and hear him. Because when you would teach, the custom of the day was you sat down and he needed to find a place where people could see him and listen to him. And as he looked, he saw two empty fishing boats. The fishermen were not in the boats. They were on the shore at that point washing their nets after a long night of fishing and catching nothing, by the way. And Jesus stepped into one of the boats, and it belonged to Simon Peter. The other boat probably belonged to James and John, as they were partners in this industry. Now you need to remember, as I mentioned a week or two ago, this is not the first time Jesus has met these Galilean fishermen. You see, Peter and Andrew and James and John had been directed to Jesus by John the Baptist, a year or more previous to this encounter. And from that first encounter near the time of Jesus' baptism, they had followed him, they had heard his teaching, they had seen many of his miracles for nine months to a year, they had been there when he turned water into wine, they had saw him cleanse the temple, do several miracles in Judea, He had preached to Nicodemus, although they might not have witnessed that. They had seen him with a woman at the well and thought it strange. Perhaps they witnessed the healing of the nobleman's son in Capernaum. But after all of that Judean ministry, and now Jesus comes up to the northern region, these fishermen apparently return to their fishing business on the Sea of Galilee while Jesus is setting up his headquarters there in Capernaum and conducting that early Galilean ministry. But I say that just so you know that when he steps into Simon Peter's boat and he sees Simon Peter there, this is not the first time that these men had ever met Jesus. They had followed him already for some time, been with him for an extended period of time. Now verse 2 tells us the fishermen were washing their nets which was a common thing to do after you'd been out all night fishing. There are three different Greek words that we translate as nets. One of the words refers to a relatively small net that you would cast into the water. It would spread out. It was weighted on the side. It was designed to catch anything underneath it as it sank. A second kind of net mentioned in the Bible, we would spell S-A-G-E-N-E, the sagine or the saginae, as some would call it. It was a drag net that you would pull behind the boat or maybe between two boats. The most common net was the dictua, which is the one mentioned in this passage. It was the normal casting net. And these larger nets are the ones being cleaned when Jesus comes on the scene. So he steps into Simon Peter's boat 
ask him to put out a little way from the land. And Simon Peter does that. He knows Jesus. And Jesus sat down in the boat and began teaching the multitude there from the boat. Wouldn't you like to know what he said? And it's unfortunate that Luke, who is trying to compose a very orderly, exact account of everything Jesus began to do and preach, and this occasion doesn't mention a single word about what Jesus said. I wonder if Peter listened to the sermon as he's there in the boat with Jesus, or if he was just kind of spacing out and nodding off, wondering, when am I going to get home to get some rest and get some sleep? Because he'd been up all night long. But whatever the case, it wasn't long until Jesus had Simon Peter's full attention. Because when he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Probably the last thing Simon Peter wanted to do. He was dead tired. He had worked all night. He doesn't want to do this. And he says to Jesus, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your bidding, I'll let down the nets. A demanding request, to say the least. Jesus is asking a man who hadn't slept all night, who had spent the night examining empty nets, asking him to go out into the deep and let down the nets that he had just cleaned. So now the nets are going to get dirty again, and when he gets back in, he's going to have to clean them again. And Peter's probably thinking, does he know what he's asking? I mean, this landlubber, he, he doesn't even realize this isn't the time to fish. You fish during the night, not during the daytime when you want to get the big catches. And not only that, you don't go out and cast your nets in the deep. The fishermen knew that they would catch the most fish in closer to the shore. And, and why is that? Why is that where the fish are? I mean, you can, Bonnie's folks live just north of East Fork Lake on the St. Marie Road. You can cross that lake, you know, when, when guys are out fishing, and gals too, for that matter, in their boats. Here they've got these boats and everything, and where are they at? Right by the shore. You can stand on the shore, save the money in the boat. You know, why make that kind of, but nevertheless, Peter knows that. That, that, that you don't go out into the deep. The best fishing is usually near the shore. But Peter says, at your bidding, I'll let down the nets. In other words, because you say so, I'll do it. That's a momentous phrase. Peter's a professional fisherman. He knows the sea. He knows the odds of going out there and catching fish. But he had seen Jesus in action before. He had seen the miracles he had performed. He had witnessed those things. He had witnessed healings that Jesus had performed. Seen him cleanse the temple. Turn water into wine. And so when Jesus makes this simple, absurd request, Peter obeys, I think, because of his respect and his trust in Jesus. So he takes his boat out into the deep and casts out the net. Now, if Peter was yawning and trying to rub sleep out of his eyes as he dropped the nets over the side, it didn't last long. He is soon shocked into being wide awake. 
Because as he begins to pull the net back in, it's kind of tough. Then his muscles begin to flex and his eyes bug out and maybe something of a smile begins to break out all over his face because there's such a large number of fish in the net that it begins to tear and the boat begins to sink. And all of a sudden the smile turns into a grimace and he knows he needs some help. And so what does he do? He beckons, he beckons for James and John to come and help. His hands are full of net. He doesn't want to let go, so he's probably nodding, you know, like this with his head. And, and they take notice, and here they come. But it makes me wonder something. What was Jesus doing this whole time? Did Peter ever turn around and say, are you just going to sit there? Are you going to help? You ever stop to think about that? Bible doesn't say that Jesus helped, but James and John, here they come, and at last they show up, and, and they pass on the other side of the net, and they began to pull up so that the net's between the two boats, and as they, as they pull it up, the fish begin to spill over into the boats. So many, in fact, that both boats sink deeper and deeper into the water with the threat of going under. You ever been in a small boat on the lake? And thinking that it's going to sink. I have once. And praise God it didn't sink. Howard Newland wanted the preacher's quartet. The four of us in a boat for a Galilean service during a week of church camp. Plus Mike Corson who was going to give the message for the Galilean service. There were five of us in that boat. And Mike was the smallest. <laughs> if you know Howard Newland you know that we had some big guys in that boat. And when I put my hands on the edge of the boat, my fingers were in the water. I kid you not. But we didn't sink. Praise God. But, but, but these guys, they're, they're thinking they're going to sink because of how many fish. This is about all the blessing they could handle. I mean, they were shut out the night before with nearly nine months of bills to catch up on because they'd been following Jesus for a while. But on this occasion, in one beautiful moment, the Lord takes care of all their bills and even provides enough extra for a new dress for their wives. Now these first century boats were probably about seven and a half feet wide and around 27 feet long. In fact, we don't have a slides up there. You can't get it back up. Okay. I had a picture of a first century fishing boat taken up from the floor of the Sea of Galilee that dates to the time of Jesus. Just the bottom part of it, just to give you an idea of that. But again, seven and a half feet wide and about 27 feet long. But a, a massive miracle here. And you would think that Peter would kind of like having Jesus around, right? I mean, hey, this is good for business. But after they got their boat steadied and their hearts stopped pounding, Peter just falls to his knees on a slimy pile of fish and says, Depart from me, O Lord. I'm a sinful man. He had just seen Jesus for who he really is and saw himself in the light of the Son of God. And, and Peter's thinking correctly here. I mean, unlike the crowds, Peter's not selfishly seeking a miracle. 
But right now, he's thinking about what it really meant to be in the presence of the Son of God, to be in the presence of the Messiah. That requires obedience. But that fact can also bring about judgment. And Peter's responding, I think, out of fear of the presence of God himself. This, this is a fearful miracle to Peter. And the, the people out on the banks, if they've witnessed this, no doubt they're laughing and cheering and selling souvenir t-shirts. But they weren't in the boat that almost sank. They weren't so personally touched by this miracle as Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And I mean, this is one professional fisherman who understands the power of the sea. He understands the majesty of this miracle. And just as Jesus had seen down through the waters to the fish, so he saw down through Peter into the depths of his heart. Peter had seen Jesus do miracles before, but this time Jesus ministered in Peter's personal universe, his sea, his boat, his nets. And so the significance of this miracle, I think, came to Peter as never before. And he saw that Jesus, Jesus belonged to a sphere that he didn't belong to. Peter knew in some way he was in the presence of God, and it made him aware of his own sinfulness. That's why he fell to his knees and asked Jesus to depart from him. Later on, as Peter grew in his knowledge and his knowledge of Jesus and his experience with Jesus, his consciousness of sin would drive him to God, not away from God. And listen, folks, the more we know of our sin and the more we know of Jesus, the more we'll run to him and not away from him because he and only he has made the sacrifice for our sins, taking all of our sin away. He and only He can forgive. He and only He can give life. He and only He can put lives together again. Do you know that you're a sinner? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. But do you see who Jesus really is? And if so, then run to Him. But notice Jesus' reply to Peter's request. Jesus said to him, do not fear. From now on, you'll be catching men. Catching men. A Greek phrase that literally means to catch men alive. That's what it literally means. Do not fear. From now on, you will catch men alive. In other words, you're going to be taking live captives. Now that particular word or phrase is used only one other time in the New Testament and it's in 2 Timothy 2.26 where it describes how we rescue from Satan those whom he has caught alive. Satan's live captives. So this call to be fishers of men, to catch men alive, is a call to battle. Larry shared a couple of weeks ago in the call to worship about our spiritual warfare that we're engaged in. And so the call to be fishers of men is a call to battle. We go behind enemy lines to free the captives that Satan has seized. And this call to Peter to be a fisher of men was famously fulfilled in his life, was it not? Stop and think. Luke records in Acts when Peter preached at Pentecost. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Did he catch men alive? Yes, he did. 
And then a short time later, when he was arraigned before the Sanhedrin, the cats had grown to over 5,000. And throughout Peter's life, that number just grew and grew and grew. So don't fear, Peter. From now on, you're going to catch men alive. And notice the response of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. In verse 11, when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. These fishermen added up all the evidence they had of who Jesus was, made the most momentous decision of their lives. They left everything. Everything else just didn't match up to following Jesus. And they made him first in their lives and followed him. They went with him to assist him in his divine mission. They turned from being fishermen to being fishers of men. I mean, what else is there to do when such a one as Jesus calls you to follow him? And you see, this is the logic of the kingdom. It applies to every one of us that claim to be children of the king. Jesus calls us, his children, to a lot of different types of work. Jerry was an electrician. Mike was a coach. David was a teacher. Dina was a teacher. Denny's a truck driver. Fred cuts meat. All right. Elaine was a physical therapist. Joni was a nurse. All different kind of vocations in that respect are here, okay? But that, it doesn't matter what you do in life to make a living. All of us are to devote our lives to catching men and women alive in whatever lake or sea we find ourselves in. That's to be our perpetual vocation. If you come and follow Jesus, he will make you to become a fisher of men. You'll catch men Alive, And one of the problems in our world today is that there's far too many Christians who refuse to catch men and women, who just refuse to go fishing. But these men, they left everything behind and followed Jesus, a total commitment. Over in Mark chapter 10, verse 28, Peter said to Jesus, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, no one that's done that, they're going to be blessed. I think of missionaries. How many missionaries do you know that have left everything to follow Jesus? We support Go Ministries, right, with Randy and Validia Caldwell. Who've left this country behind to go and train, and ultimately they're in the Dominican Republic and ultimately hope to go to South America. I think of a gal by the name of Shelley Hilvetti, who was serving in Africa in a place that's dangerous. Other missionaries that have just left everything behind, serving in very dangerous areas, because Jesus said, Come follow me, and I'll make you catch men alive. And they're doing it. But what about you and I? What are we willing to leave behind in order to follow Jesus? What are we willing to leave behind in order to go catch men and women alive? 
What is there for us to leave behind? Any number of things, but are we willing to do it? How does the church grow? By sitting inside the building, hoping people come through the doors? No. How does the kingdom grow? By fishermen catching fish. By fishers of men catching people alive. That's you and I. And that's the call. We're going to stand today and sing him a decision. That's the call Jesus makes to each one of us. Follow me and you'll catch men alive. And that's what we have to do. Let's stand and sing. If you have a public decision you'd like to make today, you meet me down front while we stand and sing.